Mr. DJ, if you please. 1943. Southern India, a young mother rocks her feverish child as he screams in pain. She fears he won't make it through the night. Even as relatives pile wood for the boy's funeral pyre, she hears a knock on the door. Standing there, a traveling monk, robes tattered, bends towards the young mother and says this. If someone, anyone agrees to accept the child's illness as their own, I can save the boy's life. Welcome to Snap Judgment. It's that fork in the road. The right, the left, jump. Or don't. Snap Judgment. Stay tuned. Mr. DJ, hit me. Hit me two times. Hit me uptown. Hit me downtown. Now give me a beat. Welcome to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. My name is Glenn Washington, and recently I invited myself over to my boy Chandra's place. It was a good move because Chandra's mother-in-law had thrown down with this tremendous Bengali feast, the mutton, the choli, rice, samosa. It was delicious. I had just put down my fork when the patriarch of the family, an older, respected doctor, he asked me, he says, Glenn, what's this snap judgment business? I tell him, it's about the decisions people make that change everything. So he told me that when he was a child, five years old, small village, southern India, that he was stricken with mysterious illness. I used to have very severe pain. He screamed night and day in so much pain that the entire neighborhood prayed. Pain that was unbearable. They prayed not for his recovery because he was too far gone for that. They prayed for his death in order to end his suffering. They almost used to pray, let, let him die. Outside his house, he could see his uncles stacking wood, constructing his funeral pyre. The situation was hopeless, but then a magic door opened. His mother heard a knock. In front of the house, a traveling monk, his hands dirty, his clothes tattered, said he had heard of the family's sorrow. He said that he could help. He said that if someone, anyone, agreed to take the child's suffering as their own, that he could cure the boy. But the mother had nine children. She couldn't risk the entire family. The father was the family's sole breadwinner. But then the snap judgment. And there was a servant. A family servant ran out in front of the mother, bent before the monk, and begged to take the boy's burden as his own. The monk asked, Are you willing to take the boy's pain? When the servant nodded, the monk folded his hands performed a prayer, and it was done. The servant's skin turned suddenly blue. The boy fell into a deep sleep, and that night, the servant became violently ill. But he was stronger than the little boy. He carried the burden. He fought off the sickness, and in the morning, the boy was healed. I asked that boy, now an accomplished doctor, what happened? Apparently, I was cured after that. It's true. 
You know, that I believe. Something magical, something happened. Welcome Snap Judgment. Magic door. Magic doors. They say that we are irrational people. They say that magic is dead. Today on Snap Judgment, I'm here to tell you that they lie. This week, we bump up against the inexplicable and look behind those magic doors when the walls are closing in, when there's no more air left to breathe. That's when people sometimes discover they still have one more card left to play. Take, for example, our next guest, Tahir Shaw. Tahir Shaw flips the script because sometimes the magic just comes to you. But other times, you have to go looking for the magic. I was living in a a tiny apartment in London and very, very miserable because the bad weather, the bad food, everything was, was miserable. And I knew that had to be something better. There had to be a, a greener, more wonderful sort of landscape to live in. And I had a, a little toddler, a daughter of two and a half, Ariane, and my son had just been born. I felt this terrible oppression, partly because of the terrible expense of London. But then it ran deeper than that. I got this feeling of a huge burden on my shoulders and responsibility. And I was just overloaded and overstressed with the situation and the the baby was crying and I felt like an old faithful, huge geezer. And I exploded and I jumped on a chair and I punched my right arm up in the air and I shouted, we're leaving. We're leaving all of this behind us and we're gonna find a new life in Morocco. For me, that was the moment of snap judgment. It was the moment that defined the next four or five years. As a child, Tahir had visited Morocco, but really knew nothing about living there. Yet, when he made this snap judgment, his universe began to shift. Things started falling into place by purest chance. An old acquaintance made to hear a proposition. She said, I own a house in, in Casablanca, it's in a shanty town, but it's a magical mansion, a huge house. And she said, if you make a decision really fast, I can sell it to you for, for almost nothing. So I flew down to Casablanca and looked at this place, and it's called Dar Khalifa, which means the Caliph's house. It had been boarded up for nine years, and all around it is this seething, frenetic shantytown, a mixture of donkeys and goats and geese and people and shacks made of tin, and um, it really looked like the end of the world. I just, I just, I just couldn't believe it. What does it smell like? It smells of manure, always. And a little bit of sewage, because it's been raining a lot and the sewers have burst. And to me, that's fabulous. It's the kind of life that you could never even hope hope to have in Northern Europe. I mean, this is the real world, and that's why I'm so passionate about it. And from the moment I set eyes on the shantytown and, and the house in the middle of it, I was bitten by something, by this feeling that... I had to embrace this life which had arrived to us through making that snap judgment. 
So I called the lady who was in, in England uh, on my cellular phone and I said, I've decided whatever it takes, I want to live in this house. As little as Tahir knew about living in Morocco, his wife knew even less, wanted to know less than that. She thought he was crazy, but he begged her. He begged her, baby, please, baby, baby, please give me a chance and I'll make this a dream come true. Over a couple of years, we renovated the house. It's, it's quite big and there are sort of 35 or 40 rooms and there are stables and gardens and courtyards filled with fountains the sound of birds singing. It's really the most magical house in the world. But the problem was, because it had been boarded up for nine years, in, um, like in Europe or maybe the United States, if a house has been empty, you get squatters, people, homeless people go and live there and it's hard to get them out. But in Morocco, you don't get squatters, you get gin, genies. And everyone believed that the house was filled with these terribly dangerous spirits and that it was far too dangerous for human habitation. So the guardians who came with, along with the house, they were sort of thrown in for free, these ancestral guardians, they told us it's far too dangerous to actually live in the place because you'll be killed by these spirits. And you'll be killed. Well, of course, the guardians and everybody else believes you'll actually be swallowed whole in the night by these huge evil spirits. We call them genies in the West, and, and I'm sure everyone listening is thinking of I Dream of Genie and Larry Hagman and all of that. But in Arab society, genies aren't anything like that. These are poltergeists. So we had to hold a huge exorcism to relieve the house of its spirits, to clean it, to cleanse it. And gosh, in London or New York, I wouldn't know where, where to start finding exorcists. But in Morocco, it's pretty damn easy to, to track down some exorcists. I found a brotherhood of exorcists called the Esawa brothers. And there are 24 of them. And their fathers have been exorcists and their grandfathers and their great grandfathers. And I felt when I hired them, it cost like four or five hundred dollars to hire them. I felt as if I was tapping into like a mysterious, magical bedrock of Morocco. And it was very exciting, but at the same time, these exorcists started in a way to kind of destroy the house. It was a little bit like Ghostbusters, if anyone remembers that scene in the hotel where they go in to get the ghosts and they end up setting fire to the hotel and, and destroying a lot of it. And it was a bit like that, the, the exorcists covered the house in milk and salt, which wasn't so bad. And then they killed a goat and dissected it and swallowed its gallbladder and ripped out its intestines and covered the house in its blood and entrails. And I kept saying to my wife, Rachna, look, this is, it'll be okay. These guys know what they're doing. They're professionals. And the exorcism went on for, for two days and then three days. And all the while they were they were crazy drumming 24 exorcists mad frenzied guys swallowing their own blood and biting their arms and it was like something i'd never imagined let alone seen before and they left us with a house that was 
squeaky clean of spirits. And that's where we've been ever since. And I tell you that while I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm sitting in my beautiful library. The shelves are made out of very, very fine cedar wood. And while I sit here, and I sit here very often pondering the move here and the, the decision that came about to bring us here, I thank God that I listened to the snap judgment in the first place. I listened to my heart and not my head. And it was my heart that was saying, leave all this in London and just give me a chance and I won't let you down. That is what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Tahir Shah opening those magic doors of Snap Judgment Radio Land. So far, we've been to East London, South India, North Africa, and we have just gotten started. We've got a performance. You've got to hear to believe. Snap Judgment Radio. Stay tuned. Listening to Snap Judgment, the show that takes you out to eat, knowing full well it doesn't have any money to pay for it. Today, we're opening up magic doors, opening up magic doors, magic doors, and I'm bringing on somebody who's got a key, Mr. Josh Healy. Josh, you've got a story you want to tell us. That's right. So, DJ Mr. G, I think this story needs a little bit of undertow, a little something, something. Can you hook him up? The last time I almost died, I was driving back from my grandpa's funeral. Doing 85 up I-90 Chicago to Madison felt long and cold like the rabbi's smile. I just passed Beloit when out of the blizzard beside me roared this 18-wheel Optimus Prime. He switched lanes right in front. My brakes didn't react well to the sudden introduction, and my Chevy Malibu skidded across three lanes, did a full 360 on the shoulder, and headed straight towards a hill of the brightest snow I'd ever seen. Sweat on my hands, piss on my thighs, taking what I assumed would be my last breath, I yelled out to the windshield of the universe, oh crap, crap. Crap, 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 crap. And while this was all happening, my mind jumped outside the car, looked back in at my body and yelled, Josh, you're about to die. About to crash the after party 
way too early. Never to kiss Berkeley lips or write fake entries on Wikipedia ever again. And all you can say is crap, 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 crap? For real? Now the last time I saw Grandpa, I was stopping through on my way back from my first West Coast winter break. I introduced him to Esther. He asked about our first date, reminded Grandma of their own. He asked how the co-op was. Did I bring him any tofu? He listened to college stories and bad jokes, laughed like only Hal Goldman could, his left shoulder bouncing to his chin, joyous silence from his mouth, a perfect six-hour visit. The next day he called. Josh, I couldn't sleep last night. I want to apologize for that joke I made comparing you to Ben. Parents and grandparents, we shouldn't do that to our children. I'm, I'm sorry. I told him I didn't even know what he was talking about, but either way, well, I always liked Grandma better. His smile burst through the phone as he asked, Okay, funny boy, see you at Passover? Of course, Gramps. Now the Chevy Malibu was stronger than I expected. I didn't hit the hill or heaven or even my head. The car went into a ditch, stopped slow and quiet, almost like it was surprised too. I got out, touched my fingers to the frozen earth, got back in and drove off, 60 miles an hour this time. When I passed Janesville, still shaking like when mom first told me, I looked over and saw Grandpa sitting right next to me in the passenger seat. How's it going, funny boy? Well, Grandpa, I think I almost died out there. Tell me about it. I did, and he listened all the way past Madison, neither one of us wanting this car ride to end. Josh Healy. Josh Healy. Snap judgments, poet laureate. Josh, you loved your grandfather. I did. Tell us about him. My grandfather was the storyteller. He was the one who passed on the traditions. And, you know, when he passed, I really needed to tell his story. So I do it in the form of poetry. Well, Josh, the force of the grandfather runs strong through his grandson. We're going to have a link to Josh Healy's book, Hammer Time, on our website, snapjudgmentradio.org. But next up, Aaron Newton relates an improbable tale about his grandfather and grandmother. This story bends the very laws of time and space. Mr. DJ, take us back, way back to 1943. <laughs> When my grandfather was in World War II, he was a lieutenant colonel in the Army and uh, was in the European theater. And on one occasion, um, he was ordered to go take the top of a hill. Very top of the hill was an anti-aircraft gun. And so in a very rapid succession of moments, the German 
soldier in the anti-aircraft emplacement started to turn the gun towards my grandfather. My grandfather reached for his service weapon, it was a Colt 45, it was a pistol. And as he was reaching for that, the anti-aircraft gun shot first and hit him and spun him around. And when it hit his hand, his instinct was to clasp his other hand across the one that was wounded and cover the wound. And he tucked it into his chest, into his stomach, and passed out and fell face first into the undergrowth of the forest. Cut to my grandmother. She lived in the farmhouse that was built, you know, like 200 years ago. And she woke up in the middle of the night and just sat up at bolt upright in bed and said, thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you. And then she got out of bed and she went over to her writing desk and she wrote a letter to my grandfather. Dear Jack. And she signed it and put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it. The next morning she mailed it off to the war. Germany is now beaten, completely and thoroughly beaten. My grandfather, he wakes up in a hospital. They sewed his pinky almost into his wrist, so his hand's almost at a right angle. And they actually managed to kind of rebuild his hand. And then they shipped him off to England. So a couple weeks go by, and he manages to kind of get a, plane, a, a seat on a plane without... He doesn't have any papers that say he's even supposed to be on the plane. And he ends up in New York. He gets there, you know, no one knows what to do with him, and he, he manages to kind of uh, pester enough people to where they finally just put him on a plane, a C-130, and he's the cargo. Like, he's the only thing on the plane other than the pilot and the co-pilot. After a couple of hours, my grandfather is just, you know, talking and looking out the window, and he recognizes some landmark... And he says, you know, you're going to fly over my house. Give me your parachute. You know, he's arguing with the pilot and the co-pilot, neither of which want to give up their parachutes. And he says, like, look, I have been over there in the war for the last two or three years. I want to see my wife. I want to see my children. Give me your parachute. And he manages to convince them. Meanwhile, the guy at the Air Force Base who's talking to the pilot says, hey, does this guy have a phone? And my grandfather says, yeah, we, we do have a phone. Uh, we don't have indoor plumbing yet, but we do have a phone. So the guy at the Air Force Base says, well, I could call her, uh, and I could hold things together, the receivers and the radio together in such a way where you could hear her, but she won't be able to hear you. I'll have to relay whatever you say to her. Cut to my grandmother. She is sitting in the outhouse, cut into kind of a cul-de-sac in a cornfield. And out on the horizon, she sees a C-130, which is not uncommon even today. There's still kind of a traffic lane there of those types of planes. But this one turns, and immediately she's, she knows what's happening. And she's, she jumps up and hikes up her britches and is doing jumping jacks in the middle of this cornfield yelling, no, 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 no. So my grandmother hears the phone ring and goes running into the house, picks up the phone, and she just screams, tell him not to jump. And everybody freezes. She doesn't know that he's been injured. She doesn't know that he's on that plane, that he's on his way home. She's had no contact with him. No. Like, she has no knowledge that he's on his way. And my grandfather's got one leg and one arm in the parachute, He's, you know, he's, he freezes from putting on the parachute. The pilot and everybody freezes. And then she says again, tell him not to jump. He'll break his leg. And so she convinces him. He doesn't jump. And they have this conversation over the air through the radio guy at the Air Force Base. And he goes on to Andrews Air Force Base. And they put him through psych to make sure he's not shell-shocked and everything. I'm going to kiss my baby when I get home on victory day. And he gets home like a month later. And he gets up one morning and he goes to the mailbox. And he opens the mailbox and takes out this letter. And it's stamped. London, Paris, the front lines of the war. Then back to Paris. Then back to London. Then to New York. Then to Andrews Air Force Base. And then back to the house. When it arrives at the house, in my grandfather's hands, he opens the letter. And it's the letter from my grandmother. Dear Jack. Which 
was signed and dated like she always did, but she also put the time, which she never did. And the time, when they later sat down and figured out the difference, she wrote that letter within minutes of my grandfather being shot. And the letter reads, Dear Jack, you've been hurt, but you're okay. But they're going to send you home this time. When you do, you're going to fly over the house. Don't jump out. You break your leg. You're telling me your grandmother had magic powers. I, she would have said that she spoke to God. You're to telling me that your grandmother spoke to the Lord. <laughs> what I would say is that I believe my grandmother. Snap Judgment just jumped out of an airplane in 1943. We're going to land on top of a magical, mystical volcano in Indonesia. Three friends... Ian, Stuart, and Neil have just spent the night under a torrential downpour. No tent, no shelter. They're sorry, stinking, shivering, crying for their mamas. And finally, with the long night over, they scramble back down the mountain as fast as they can go. I'm going to let them take it from here. After about six hours of hiking, we were, you know singing a song or whatever you do to keep yourself sort of putting one foot in front of the other. But we heard this sort of like... <laughs> sort of my left foot-ish. You know? And we were like, we kind of stopped because we were sort of you know, armchair naturalists as well. That might be a uh, yellow-bellied, you know, knuckle cracker. And then we'd hear... A little louder. And we kept walking towards it and got closer and closer. And we were like, that's not a bird. That's a person. And we kind of bushwhack, you know, about 10 yards off the trail. And there's a man, an Indonesian man, lying in his tiny, tiny, like, bikini <laughs> underpants in, a, in his tent, which has collapsed. And he's got... Um, a Sprite. Well, he's got a Sprite he's trying to open, like, but he can't open it. He's got cutlery and all sorts of crystal wear. You know, on the edge of sort of like a... A pretty steep drop off, you know. He was, he was, he was, he was hypothermic, you know. I mean, he was, we didn't. Yeah, he was lying there, shivering, making no sense, trying to open his sprite with like a piece of wood, and obviously out of his out of his gourd. So Ian just took him, and he just hugged him, just hugged the life into this guy. He got just, naked first. You know, I think he took. I took some clothes, I took some clothes off because I think yeah. I did a little skin on skin. <laughs> It was an intimate moment. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm, you just look at it and you think that's, that's a, 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 that was a, a, a big move. You stripped down and held him and put heat back into his body. Right. I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was really amazing. When, but, when you hugged him, did he try to get away? No, no. He was, uh, he was kind of like a big kid. He was sort of like having a baby. So after we realize that he's, he's, he's coming to, we try to carry him down these um, the giant steps. The giant steps. There was this horrible trail of giant steps. And we each put him on our back and we tried and we'd make it about 100 yards. And I think when Stuart was carrying him, uh, he peed all over Stuart as well. Didn't we try to make like a yeah? Uh, we like tried a, to make a we good tried to get some sticks and make one make yeah. a stretcher, which totally didn't right. work. You did the stuff that you you know you see on TV and stuff, and and it's not working. He's not cooperating, 
and he's miserable and he's screaming. In any case, the, the real pivotal decision that we came to after a few hours was to not try and get him down with ropes or gurneys or whatever, but to let him, in whatever form he could, use his own force. Uh, yeah, like holding him. I remember holding him, one from behind and one from the front, and walking down the mountain backwards on these giant steps or whatever they were. But what you did see is you could see in his eyes. You were now on the same wavelength, you know, and, and, and now you were talking to the man's soul. He might have been dying, but at least you were making eye contact and getting someplace. We decided to split up and that I would uh, hike the town and uh, Stuart and Neil would continue walking him down the mountain. So I walk like three or four hours. I actually run into some farmers on the outskirts of town and I say in my, my budding Indonesian, there is a man on the mountain dying. Come help us. And I'm already... You can <clears throat> do that. You can say that. I can say, man dying, come help us. Uh, and... <clears throat> All they want to know is, how much money are you going to pay us if we, go, if we go help you with the man? So I somehow negotiate that something will be arranged. Uh, but this man is dying. You need to come help us. And so they tie their ox into a tree. Ten minutes later appears the biggest Indonesian man we've ever seen. He's got big muscles. I've got like four guys and me. And we start walking back up the mountain. You've just come down the mountain. Now you've got to go back up it again. Now we've got to go back up because they've made very little progress. Uh, but and, and you know that they're in danger of hypothermia if you don't hurry up and get some help. I wasn't too worried about them. They were going to be all right. I don't think we knew we were going to be all right. Really? <laughs> we weren't feeling that way. The, the rescue party was, uh, I remember how we met up. It was so exciting. You know, we heard them. They called to the, you know, we heard them faint. And for us, it was, you know, a saving moment. And I remember the, the, the rescue party was <laughs> pretty upset that they thought they were going to save an American. You know what I mean? They were all like <laughs> picturing international headlines. And when they found out that it was just some Indonesian guy, you know, <laughs> they were like ready to leave him there, you know. And you're, you're kind of like, look at, we're taking him. let uh, the big strapping Indonesian basically take over. And these guys, they're like, they're farmer strong. They take turns carrying them, and pretty quickly, the whole party gets back down to town. And we went to our uh, place, and we fell asleep for like two days. The guy who we'd saved was with us. Did you talk to him? Um, we did. No meaningful words were exchanged with that guy. Besides, thank you, thank you, you saved my life. He was kind of a dork. Well, the Indonesians wanted to know what this Yahoo was doing on the mountain. So in speaking with the, the, the host family, uh, they were using a word we couldn't understand. We agreed on the word uh, was magic. He was on that mountain looking for magic. It was a powerful mountain that would, would give you magic. What do you mean he went to find magic? He was like a city slicker who had come up to the country to go find magic. So we discussed magic with our host family. They said, you might want to go see a man who lives down the road called the Tuki Man. Who, who's the Tuki Man? Uh, and they said, well, he's a magic man. And, uh, and they all said, and he can take you to see the tigers. And we thought, that sounds great. Like, we, we, we can definitely do that. That's when our friend, Neil, decided, 
I've kind of had enough. I, I don't want to go meet a magic man. I'm, I've never been this tired. I'm already sort of freaked out by what we just went through in the last four days. I'd like to go back to the city. And we said, great, go back to the city and buy some batiks and, you know. Smoke. We were looking for more. Will a magic man take our explorers through the jungle to see tigers? Or will something crazy happen instead? Stay tuned. Snap judgment. The decisions that change everything will be right back. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the show that said he was going to call you back, but never did. I'm Glenn Washington. When we left, our intrepid travelers had just rescued a nerd from certain death before hearing of a mysterious magic man from whom they could glean much knowledge. What's more, he could lead them to tigers, so into the jungle they leapt off towards his distant, rickety crazy longhouse. Strap on our backpacks and arrive at this really sort of terrifying looking ramshackle house that was the Tukey Man's house. And out walks a four and a half foot tall man with the most bizarre haircut you've ever seen. He's got two like balls of hair on his, on his, on his, on his head, sort of like where antlers would go in a deer. He was very, very, very cool and invited us into his house. It was dark, and there were two candles burning, and all of a sudden, some guy comes in. 14-year-old boy? 15-year-old boy? Yeah. And so he lies down on the floor, and I have a look at him, and then, and I I think it's kind of weird that there's a guy sort of flopped on the foot of the bed. Stuart's speaking mostly because he speaks more Indonesian about how many bags of sugar we need and how many bags of rice. And, and I'm peering over the edge and, and the, the kid at the foot of the bed is starting to get a little agitated and starting to move around and moan and uh, as though he's, you know, got a fever or something. And then, you know, it's kind of boom, 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 you know, like things are, he's really thrashing around down there and we can hear it kind of like, like bumping against the bed and, um, and I say, Stu, I look at him I'm like, man, th- 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 there's a guy down here. He's not doing very well. And uh, Stuart's like, shh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in an important discussion with Tukey Man. And I'm like, I'm okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and then now, and now the guy's, the kid is flopping around like a tuna after it's been brought out of the ocean. He's like, you know, flapping around. And I'm like, Stu. And the kids are screaming. They're terrified because he's, he's kind of a spectacle. And the Tukey Man just kind of moves in and takes over, grabs the guy's hand, and he starts speaking to him in another language. 
And the Tuki man just takes a glass of water with flowers in it and sort of holds his head and the kid greedily gulps the, the glass of water down with the flowers, flowers and all. And then he kind of calms down and we thought, oh, great, you know, obviously he's okay. And then the kid jumps up in some kind of like super ninja pose in the middle of the living room and does like some serious Bruce Lee sh- He's doing these kicks, karate chops, and like, like intense. And right then, the wind starts blowing really bad. And the tin roof on the place is like, and, and I started running for the door. I, I was I, I was terrified. Wait, wait, wait. The wind is blowing. It's howling right when he's doing his chops and right stuff. Right when he's doing his karate chops, the wind is like, you know, just intense. The whole the, the, little... The, the place is the, shaking. The hut feels like it's going to fall apart. And the only thing that kept me there was Stuart. He grabbed me by the sleeve and he said, just wait. It's going to be okay. The Tukey man knows what he's doing. <laughs> And so wait, I, wait, 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 slow down. Stuart, what, what? Did this happen? That happened. At, at that point, whatever was trying to happen, I might have uh, been able to help, you know, if I were to just open up, you know, and so I, 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 I kind of did. I guess I just um, sort of let it, let it through me, you know what I mean? Like whatever energy force, whatever you believe in that was supposed to be, um, that was happening. I mean, you don't have any idea what's happening, but I just felt like, the convulsions transformed, you know, almost as if Mr. Mr. the Tookie Man needed, like, uh, everybody there to be um, channeling, you know, if you believe in that stuff or whatever. Um, I don't really know how I stand on it, but that's that's how I felt at that moment. And that's when he did come back. Well, well later on, uh, what Tookie Man told us was that that was his father who had come back through that boy. Stuart. Yeah. Do you think that the Tukey man's father came back through that boy. I, I, I do. I do. I, I, uh, being a scientist, I necessarily have to amend that by saying there's a lot of possibilities out there. But, yeah, I believe it. Yes, dude. It was, it was definitely Tukey man's father. Uh, well, look, the, the, the boy had a transformation. We saw and we felt. It wasn't just that you said. If you just saw it, if you yeah, saw it film. It was a feeling. What did it feel like? And what, what, what about this... This, this pounding on the roof, this electricity in the air. It felt like the Tuki Man was really in control. Stuart and I were like shaken to our core. And this guy was like, where were we? When it started, I just, I just sort of centered and let it go through me. But then there came a point. You're wondering if you are letting something channel through you, maybe you lose yourself. You know, maybe it's gonna take you. You know, if you're that opened up. And at that point, I shut off, and at that point, the karate master lay back down. And that's something I look back on, and I, I don't know if I, I, I regret it or, or not. You know, maybe you feel like you could have been more believing, or, or maybe it was the time. You know, maybe you just have to know when to say, like, well, what's fun is fun, but I'm not going to lose my soul or whatever, you know? Get, like <laughs> get, get eaten up by a karate goblin spirit from Indonesia right. and never come back. And, and I just, on a real deep level, I just, you know, or, uh, I, just, I just closed off and it, and, it, and it stopped. You know, that's where you really see you can, you can go as deep as you want to go, you know? It's there and you can touch it and you can be part of it, you know? And it's all, you know, how, how far down the rabbit hole are you, are you willing to go? 
Stuart says, these walls are not real. Stuart says, you can go down the rabbit hole. I have been down the rabbit hole. And when I was there, I met a guy, Jeff Greenwald.com. Traveler, writer, explorer. Jeff's magic door opened on the other side of the world. Jeff was looking for a magic potion. He found one. It read, drink me, snap judgment. Nothing in the world compares with arriving in Africa by ship. We could smell the continent. We could smell the animals and the fuel and the spices. Every kind of smell you could imagine commingled. Senegal has this really interesting mix of uh, Islam and traditional animistic beliefs. You were looking for magic. We were looking for magic. In between the fancy ice cream places and international banks, the um, maraboots with their with their tarpaulins spread out with monkey paws and uh, and and feathers and uh, strange animal bones and eyeballs and parts, which are all sewn together into these jujus that people wear around their waist for magical protection. Jeff had a guide named Malang who took him to three different future tellers. The first one was, it was a woman called Nade, and she had a bowl of cowrie shells in front of her. And she looked at me and shook up these cowrie shells and threw them down on the ground, and uh, she just said, Your mother loves you very much, and it's not too late to become a doctor. Well, that wasn't going to get it. So Malang took Jeff to see a witch doctor named Fat Sack. And she was as thin as a rail, and as black as a fire iron, and she was this wizened woman who uses the spirits and the jinns that live in the atmosphere and in the earth. They were literally trapped in these gigantic jars in her backyard, and uh, she would find out what kind of spell you wanted, positive or negative one, go to one of these big uh, pots, these big uh, vats or vessels in her backyard, draw out water from this strange wooden straw that was broken from a tree, and then spray it into your face. Jeff said... He was looking for the divine. Fatsack spit it right in his face. And Fatsack just you know, puts her hands on her shoulders and says, You are now under my protection. Adieu. Malang has one more shot. They go to the end of the rabbit hole. And there stands Coley. And I looked at this Coley guy and I... I felt I had never seen a more beautiful-looking man. He was probably Whoa. around six feet tall, dressed in this beautiful uh, robin's egg blue uh, kaftan or jalaba, just this long, flowing gown. And the way Coley worked was this. Coley had a small, very elaborate slate and a piece of chalk. And he would write prayers and blessings from the Quran on this slate. He would then take some rainwater, which he kept in a little purified vessel and pour just maybe 20 or 30 drops onto the slate so that it didn't run over the edges. He'd then swirl it around on the slate until all the chalk was dissolved, tilt the slate and pour the water in this thin pearlescent stream into a tiny little bottle. And depending on the prayer he'd written on the slate, the liquid in that bottle then became a a magic potion. And you could drink it, and depending on your needs, it could solve any number of problems. He said it could, it could cure people of insanity. The right spell could, could uh, make an infertile woman bear, bear twins or triplets. If you uh, passed a certain potion to a man who was in prison, the guards would simply open the doors and let him walk free. 
And I looked at Coley and I said, um, I could really use some help, but I don't know what kind of help I need. And Coley looked at me and said, I know what you need. And he took out his slate and the piece of chalk and he, he wrote some Arabic characters on the slate and he poured a few drops of water onto the slate and swished it around in his hand until all the letters were dissolved. And then in what seemed almost like magic in itself, he tilted the slate and the stream of water ran off and without a drop being lost, every bit of this water ran into this little vial and he handed it to me and he said, drink this. And without any hesitation, I just tilted the bottle to my lips and I drank it dry. And then I did something really out of character for me because I'm usually a very polite kind of guest in the home of a stranger. I just stood up, I yawned, I kicked off my shoes, and I walked through another curtain into Coley's bedroom. And I just lay down on Coley's bed and I went to sleep. I must have slept only about 15 or 20 minutes. But when I stood up, I felt as if I had been almost through like the spiritual equivalent of a car wash. I felt completely cleansed. I, I stood up, I put my shoes on, walked back in the room, and I came up to Coley and I said, as a Muslim, as a marabout, as a teacher, tell me, what's the secret of life? And Coley just looked at me with surprise and his eyes just sort of lit up and he, he grinned, showing all his teeth, and he said, the way we Muslims believe, he said, if you have enjoyed the company of close friends, wonderful food, and fine clothes, you have lived the perfect life. And I just looked at him and we both started laughing because, frankly, it wasn't the kind of Islam I've been reading about in the headlines. But in the context of Senegal, with its incredibly inclusive spiritual dance mix of music and food and, and beautiful clothing in the fabric markets, it all made perfect sense. And I left Coley's room that day feeling like, for the first time in my life, maybe I'd met uh, really a, a true magician. That was Jeff Greenwald, the author of Shopping for Buddhas and Scratching the Surface. If you want to hear more about Jeff, check out our website, our podcast. Snap Judgment Radio. Snapjudgmentradio.org. I'm Glenn Washington. And when I was a kid, of course, most of my snap judgments were made for me. My parents Deeply religious people moved us from the middle of corrupt Urbania to the middle of nowhere. You might not know this, but when you move to the middle of nowhere and you're trying to set up a trailer home, the most important thing, more important than power, more important than sewer, is hooking up to a water source. You're supposed to dig yourself a well. So the guy comes out with his boring equipment. And understand, every time he digs a hole, that's money. Whether he hits water or not, and I emphasize, we are broke. So the guy starts drilling. He puts in his rod, goes down deep, 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 deep. Nothing. And if you know him, you can see that tickle of panic start to creep into my father's face. The man moves his equipment, starts drilling again. Nothing. He drills a third time and still dirt. 
Now, our new neighbors are milling around. In rural Michigan, this is entertainment. But everybody understands the fix we're in. Nobody's rich. If this next drilling does not hit water, that's going to be our ass. And somebody says to get Kriegel. The ascent, like, that's the best thing to do. Fans back through the farm or somebody goes off in a truck. And 15 minutes later, here's Kriegel. He's an older farmhand guy. He's got his John Deere cap on like everybody else. But he's got this swagger step like nobody else. The show is on. And he says, I hear y'all need a well witching. My dad is nervous with that word witching. But he kind of nods when he thinks my mom's not looking. Well, well, that ain't no problem. Ain't no problem at all. Kriegel hops over to a willow, takes out a knife, and cuts himself a sapling shaped like the letter Y. He's stripping it down, and he says to my father loudly, You know what? It was a colored who taught me this, so I'm going to do it free of charge. Everybody starts laughing. Now, Kriegel's walking around the trailer. Each hand is gripping part of the stick. Another Part is pointed straight out in front of him. He's waving it around like a hound dog nose, like it's sniffing out something. Goes right, goes left, goes right, trying to stay close to the trailer. And then, bam! The stick just shoots down like someone had yanked on the end of it. Right there she is. Kriegel's all smiles. The farmers give a big cheer. And I'm little, like seven or eight, but I'm like, no way. No way did that just happen. And Kriegel says, come here. And he shows me how to hold the stick. I start walking around like he says, and I'm holding it real tight in both of my fists. I'm holding it so tight that when the stick dives towards the ground, bark strips off in my hand. You're natural. My father looks sick. They drill one more time, and sure enough, water. Cold, clean, delicious water, just like Kriegel said, everybody leaves. It's been a long day. My two little brothers and I get in the same bed, and we go to sleep. I'm woken to screaming, banging, crying, howling in the dark. The door of our bedroom bursts open, and it's my father, wild-eyed, in the moonlight, crying, screaming, He's feeling for our faces, and then he's shouting crazy like, get up, get up right now, get up. And we, we get up, we're fouling, bumping blind, staggering. My mother is already bent over the living room couch in prayer. My father says Satan had come to him that night in a vision and told him that since we had drank his water, we would never see God's son again, never see sunshine. So we bent as a family over the couch on our knees, begging God to forgive our transgressions, pleading to be granted one more glimpse of the Lord's sunshine and make the devil a liar, sweaty, crying, tearful, praying like slaves. And early that morning, when we saw the first rays of sun poke through the treetops, we wept together like babies, spent, exhausted, tearful but thankful ever so thankful that the Lord had sanctified the devil's water you take my money take my land take my water now let devil me come and go come and go devil me 
Baptist land. I sing praises now that the man, the water, the Lord, come and go. From his hand, come and go now, devil man. There was water, there was water. When I'm found, Lord, I'm bound by his water. I touch hands, I see him now, that devil man. Come and go, come and go. Snap Judgment was produced by myself, Glenn Washington, but you've got to have the uber producer Mark Ristich to make this snap train run, baby. The weather will rage against us without the assistance of the God of War and Radio. Our own Roman Mars. Eloise Melzer outdid herself as the intern of this project, and we've got thank yous. We've got to say thanks, but deeds speak louder than words. So if you're ever on patrol, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting pulls up with some suspicious-looking packages in the trunk of their old Nova, just look the other way. Wave them on through, wave them through. Tell them many thanks from the friends at Snap Judgment. Today's Snap Judgment episode was recorded at K-Top Studios in beautiful, lovely downtown Oakland. Youth Speaks, because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org. And if you're trying to put the public in public media, the first thing, the very first thing you better do is check out the public radio exchange, prx.org. And even though this is not the news, it's not even close to the news. In fact, you could beam aboard the Starship Enterprise, force a mind meld on First Officer Spark, spark an intergalactic war with the Romulans, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. This is NPR.